Hello and welcome to Omens and Epiphanies. I'm Grace and I'm going on a journey. I hope you'll join me. Today we're talking about the 17th card of the Major Arcana, the Star card. If you want to go grab it, this is a great time for that. The star card's meaning has always eluded me. In my second tarot deck, The Shadowscapes Tarot by Stephanie Fimunla, she depicts the star card as a woman in white robes that are fairly tight-fitting, walking on water, and she's gesturing off into the distance. It seems like she's telling stories, and part of her sort of essence is either coming up from or going down into her with a seven-pointed star above her head. The thing that eluded me was that it looks like she's walking on water, but it also looks like she's walking underwater. She has fish surrounding her and fish below her. And it seems as though she's telling the fish the stories. So I took this card to mean some sort of storytelling card, some sort of um, sharing of the cosmos with, I don't know. I don't know who the fish were, (laughs) but it was obvious that the person was the storyteller and the fish were listening because they're looking in the direction she's pointing. And so I asked my friends and I love that they, that this is their favorite card. Um, So one of my friends said that this is quote, finding direction or reorienting after some chaos, hope, healing, realignment, the hard work of that process, realizing that you have to get yourself back together and the struggle to find the Northern star again. And this makes total sense in context of the fool's journey. So right before this is the tower card, that chaos. And so after the chaos, you have to realign, find the North Star, and rebuild again. And then my other friend said, um, yes, all of that. (laughs) And it reminds me to keep going, keep going forward, keep healing, keep hopeful. And if I understand correctly, Z has this as like a necklace pendant to remind themselves to keep going. So this is a really important card to those two friends of mine. Thank you so much to Alec and Rosa for giving me some of this understanding. And now I know more about the North Star or about the Star card. Um, The Star card is the 17th card in the Major Arcana, which reduces to an eight because one plus seven is eight. Eight is about abundance, wealth, and achievement. So we're coming off of a five and a six, which is the middle of the fool's journey or the numerical journey, I suppose, um, and working towards that. Tarot 101 agrees with those two people and says that this card comes after two extremely difficult and dark cards and acts like a beacon of hope shining in the darkness, promising renewal, healing, rejuvenation, and the release of energy. It's a card of optimism, healing, and high ideals. And then in The Fool's Journey, this is a card of hope and inspiration. Tarot 101 shares that the star itself is a, is a symbol of wishes, ambition, and guidance. There's usually some sort of water on the card, which is about flow, life, or energy. Sometimes the star, um, the person on the star card will be pouring water into the water, um, which is about healing and removing blockages. Often this person is naked, which shows that she's the bare essentials of self. She is herself at her core with everything removed. Um, Often she'll have one foot on water and one on land, which is about living in an everyday and a spiritual world. 
And frequently, this card is at night. And it's specifically because only in the darkest of night can we see the stars. Only when the moon is gone, well, <laughs> only when the moon is empty, I guess, um, is, is a new moon, can we truly see all of the stars. And we can't really see them with light around us. Um, so one of my favorite things when I'm going to my dad's house at night is being able to just rest and see the stars because it's so light everywhere else and he lives in the middle of nowhere. I was curious why um, some star cards have the star showing five, six, seven, or eight points. So I was curious if that made any difference. It sounds like the, a five-pointed star. So the five-pointed star is about man and the four elements. And in a different um, tradition, it might be the four elements and aether. The six-pointed star is a shield, and it's a balance of opposites. So you'll often see one triangle pointed up and one triangle pointed down. And as we talked about in an earlier episode, that also shows the four symbols of um, fire, water, air, and earth. A seven-pointed star um, alludes to the seven elements of alchemy. And an eight-pointed star yields to life and fertility. So it does kind of matter. I don't think it's important to maybe um, memorize that or anything, but it is interesting how they're different depending on um, the card. And then um, I'm not sure how this relates, but the, um, wow, what's it called? <laughs> um, the Arabic symbol on these cards is Tzad, T-S-A-D-E, which is to trap or to hunt. Um, and so maybe to hunt is to look for your northern star. But I do want to remind you that it's kind of happened because there's 22 symbols in the, um, in, in, in <laughs> ah, okay. I was starting to say Hindu and it was not in Hebrew, there's 22 symbols and in the tarot, there's 22 cards. And so I think it was just sort of like, let's see if it works and it didn't really work. And that's understandable. So this one doesn't quite make sense to me in terms of the, the card name. Now, obviously, if we're talking about the stars, we have to talk about the Zodiac. And I've been so excited and so overwhelmed by the amount of information out there on the Zodiac signs. So this is going to be a lot of information. Um, and I really hope that it's interesting to you. I know that each of us has only one Zodiac sign that we're really interested in, but I'm going to show you today where the Zodiac signs came from, why you should be interested in more than just one, um, and why people don't believe in horoscopes. <laughs> I'm trying to, trying to cover all angles of this. So um, in the 30th century, which sounds like a crazy time ago, um, also it doesn't really sound like it exists. Aren't we in the 20th century? In in 1000 BC, approximately, in ancient Mesopotamia, which, by the way, is currently Iraq, Kuwait, Iran, Syria, and Turkey. I didn't know exactly where Mesopotamia was, so I was curious. They obviously noticed stars in the sky. Um, they named prominent constellations and identified five wandering stars, which, um, combined with the sun and the moon, became the seven original planets. And planets, by the way, is Greek for wanderers. From 1300 BC to 500 BC, Babylonians used the constellations as a yardstick of time. The Babylonians had about 17 or 18 constellations. All of them were, um, so most of them were named after animals. And they um, decided 
to use them, they noticed that they were always in the same pattern and always in the same spot in the sky at certain times of year. So they divided the sky into 12 sections and picked one of the constellations in each section in order to use the sky as a quote unquote yardstick of time. So they used this to, to say, okay, well, now we're in the sign of the, the, the bull of heaven. Um, and so that's going to last for a certain amount of time, and we'll call that a month. The Greeks later described this as the animal circle, which um, is zodiacos cyclos, aka the zodiac. So the word zodiac comes from the word animal because of the names of the stars by the Babylonians. In the 5th century BC, um, the Greeks tied gods to the planets and the constellations, which gave astrology a more dynamic and exciting story base so people could really identify with the different constellations. But the constellations were around before the Greeks were. By the way, in 1000 BC, around the same time of the Mesopotamia, identifying the um, constellations, India had a similar system developed as well. And we do know, um, in addition, the Chinese have a zodiac. So I'm really focusing on this from a Western lens, because these are the zodiac signs that I, re I recognize and um, can really d describe. Um, but there were other groups around the world who had zodiac signs. All of that was from historyworld.net um, by Bamber <laughs> Gasserguin. G-A-S-C-O-I-G-N-E, Gaskagin, I'm going to say, I might be wrong, um, in the article History of the Astrology. So I was curious what those 18 or 17 original zodiac signs were. So um, I looked up the Babylonian zodiac by um, Garley Thompson. In 2003, they wrote um, the 18 original zodiac signs. So the Pleiades, the... Uh, the Babylonians called the Pleiades um, constellation the hairbrush. That is not one of our current um, zodiac signs, but it was one of the original 17 or 18. The bull of heaven is our current Taurus. The true shepherd of Anu is now Orion. The old man was Perseus. The sickle sword um, was the Araga <laughs> constellation. Oh, the Orion, Perseus, and Aruga. <laughs> the Orion, Perseus, and Auriga. <laughs> the Orion, Perseus, and Auriga constellations are not part of our current constellations. The Great Twins is our current Gemini. The Crab is Cancer. Um, I wrote in my notes that Procyon is the alpha star of Canis Major. I don't know what that means in terms of the Cancer, but it's part of that. So we're going to just gonna accept that that's the case. Um, the lion slash lioness is currently Leo. And I don't think that they called it both. I just think they called it lion, um, like non-binary lion. And then we decided to attach um, gender to it. The furrow slash barley stock is our current Virgo. The scales of heaven um, is was once the claws of Scorpio, but it was later reintroduced by the Romans as Libra. So the Greek called it the claws of the scorpion, and now it's the Libra or scales. The scorpion is our obviously current Scorpio. They called it Scorpius in Greek. The grandfather is our current Sagittarius, the archer. The goatfish, obviously, is our current Capricorn, which in Greek is Capricornus. The great one, giant, um, is Aquarius, the water carrier. Now here's where the 1718 comes in. 
The 15th constellation was the tails, which is Pisces. Now Pisces connects the um, great swallow. Wait, sorry. <laughs> okay, Pisces is a part of the tails and Nuntitum and the great swallow. Um, and Nuntitum was a goddess. And the great swallow's tails is why we're not sure if that was one constellation or two constellation. They called it two different things, but they are connected if you look at the sky. And then finally, our last constellation was the hired man, which is Aries. I want you to notice that they started with the Pleiades and then ended with Aries. We're just gonna we're just gonna file that away. Pleiades, by the way, are a, a constellation of seven stars. We can't see the seventh one, but they used to be um, in Greek the seven sisters who Orion did Greek <laughs> things to, um, thanks Zeus, and he chases them across the sky forever, which is just so fun. So fun. Such a fun thing. Um, I would like to now go to this beautiful book that I found by Carlotta Santos named Signs of the Zodiac, A Modern Guide to the Age-Old Wisdom of the Stars because she lists the Greek origin stories for each of the constellations. So if you, excuse me, so if you will um, bear with me, I'm going to read each of the constellations origin stories, because I just think these are fascinating. I did take, um, I did take Greek mythology in college, so I know a little bit of these, and I will say Heracles and not Hercules, because that is how you say it. Um, but I, yeah, just bear with me. Okay. Um, so the Greek assigned the golden fleece as the story connected to Aries. So I'm going to quote here, quote, the constellation Aries represents a ram, specifically that of the Greek myth of the golden fleece. Although the ram appears in several stories, the most important include the one that describes the origin of the constellation and the story of Jason and the Argonauts. King Athamas had two children. Hell and Phrixus, from his first marriage to Queen Nephthili. When she passed away, he married Ino. She was cruel and planned to murder her husband's two children so that her children would inherit the kingdom. But the god Hermes, or Zeus, depending on the virgin, sorry, or Zeus, depending on the virgin, who was watching it all unfold, took pity on Hell. I think it's Hell. It's H-E-L-L-E, so it might be Helly, and Phrixus, and sent them a magical winged ram, aka the fleece, to save them. The animal flew them to new lands, but as they escaped, Hell fell into the sea and died. After the mishap, Phrixus no longer trusted the fleece's flying skills and continued his journey with it on foot. He walked until he reached the sacred forays of Ares, which belonged to King Aetes. The king welcomed Phrixus and, in gratitude, or perhaps because he was fed up with the fleece, <laughs> Phrixus sac sacrificed the ram and left it hanging from an oak tree in the forest. The gods, seeing that the fleece had done its job, ignoring the fact that one of the siblings died, turn it into a constellation so it would always be remembered. There's a second story that might be connected to Aries, or perhaps it's both. Um, but Jason, son of Aeson, <laughs> was rightful heir to the throne of Icolus, but his father's brother, Phileas, had taken over. The oracle warned Phileas, you have usurped the throne. Know that one of your brother's descendants will seek revenge. Phileas knew that the oracle was talking about Jason, so he ordered him to undertake an almost impossible task to recover the golden fleece. And so Jason began his journey, the Argonautic. The story of Jason and the Argonauts is one of the most well-known in mythology. 
For the mission to be successful, Jason recruited the best warriors, the greatest heroes of Greece, including Heracles and Orpheus. After a long and eventful journey, they reached Colchis, where Jason asked King Aetes to give him the Golden Fleece. The king consented, but on the condition that Jason passed a difficult test, plowing the land using two bulls with metal legs that spewed flames from their nostrils, then sowing some dragon's teeth. Aetes did not warn Jason that by sowing these teeth, an army would come out of the earth to attack him. Medea, daughter of Aetes, fell in love with Jason. She gave him an ointment that would make him invincible and told him about her father's plan. Jason passed the test, killed the dragon guarding the fleece, and escaped with Medea. They returned to Pleus' kingdom after much trouble, and the story had a happy ending. So that was the tale of Ares, the golden ram. Taurus, um, the myth attached to Taurus is the abduction of Europa. Now, this might have some trigger warnings. I just want to warn you. Um, We all know that Zeus is um, not the best man. (laughs) In fact, I'm going to quote the book now. Quote, it's no secret that Zeus is the biggest Olympian playboy god ever. When he liked a mortal, he had no problem kidnapping her, raping her, and simply moving on. The myth of Europa is one of those Zeus infatuation cases. In this case, the girl in question was, of course, very beautiful and enjoyed doing normal girlish things like picking flowers in fields. Europa was walking home with her friends in one of these fields when she met Zeus, who had turned himself into a white bull. Seeing the animal and not knowing it was actually a lustful god, Europa approached and caressed him, fascinated by his beauty. She made him a garland of flowers, and when she realized he was tame, she climbed on his back. Zeus seized this chance and ran off with Europa to Crete. To show her his love and to demonstrate that he had no bad intentions, Zeus transformed a constellation that recreated the white bull, the shape he had chosen to deceive and kidnap Europa. To Zeus, it might have seemed like the height of romanticism. This is the the origin of the constellation Taurus, which is located between the constellations Aries and Gemini. Europa was welcomed by the king of Crete, who later married her and adopted her three children by Zeus, which... I just want to just want to clarify means that there was indeed a non-consensual sexual relationship, aka a rape. The earliest mention of this myth is in the Iliad and in Hestiad's Catalog of Women. A more benign version tells how Zeus kidnapped Europa, but reveals his true identity when they arrive in Crete, and she consents to his desires. It's said that Zeus gave Europa additional gifts to commemorate their meeting, a necklace made by Hephaestes, Talos, a a bronze autonomon, Laplas, a dog that never let go of his prey, and a spear that never missed its mark. The abduction of Europa has been an inspiration for many artists, including Titan. Well, I don't really want to talk about how she was an inspiration because anyways, there are other myths around the bull. Um, one of them is that of the Minotaur and the Cretan bull des- described in the 12 labors of Heracles. In this story, Minos, king of Crete, promised to make an offering to Poseidon, the god of the sea. So Poseidon sent a great handsome bull out of the sea. In this story, Minos, king of Crete, promised to make an offering to Poseidon, god of the sea. So Poseidon sent a great handsome bull out of the sea. But when Minos saw the bull, he was so impressed that instead of sacrificing it to Poseidon as agreed, he decided to keep it, which is weird to me because it sounds like Poseidon gave him the bull to give back to him, but I digress. Obviously, Poseidon found that an unforgivable lack of respect and planned his revenge. He made Minos' wife, Pasiphae, fall in love with a bull. 
Months later, the queen gave birth to a strange creature, half man and half bull, the Minotaur. King Minos was very affected and had the Minotaur locked up. What happened to the Minotaur is another story. As for Poseidon's famous bull, he was strong and untamable in addition to being big and beautiful. It was Heracles who ultimately handled him and took him out of Crete. Heracles tried to offer the bull to the gods as an offering, but no one wanted it. No longer knowing what to do with the animal, Heracles set him free. The bull wreaked havoc in various towns and cities until the hero Theseus ended the animal's life once and for all. Either way, I'm not proud to be a Taurus right now. <laughs> Either way, I'm not proud to be a Taurus right now. Um, the myth associated with Gemini is the myth of Castor and Pollux. Quote, there are several versions of this myth and some contradict each other. Let's explore the most widespread one. Leda was the wife of Tyndareus, king of Sparta. They loved each other very much. Leda was beautiful and Zeus, of course, <laughs> took fancy to her. Since she knew that Leda loved her husband and that even though he was the god of Olympus, she wouldn't want to tr tryst with him. Zeus came up with an idea, as always, of dubious morality. He became a swan and tricked Leda into sleeping with him. She got pregnant by Zeus, but shortly after she did the deed with her husband and also got pregnant by him. So Leda carried a double pregnancy, one from Zeus as a swan and another from her husband. Modern technology says that that's not possible, but I will continue with the story as, as planned. Nine months later, Leda found out she was expecting two sets of twins and gave, hold on. When I said that, I was talking about the sleeping with two men and having twins part and also the sleeping with a swan and having a, a humanoid part. I just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> Both things are not possible. Okay. <clears throat> Nine months later, Lita found out she was expecting two sets of twins and gave birth to a mortal boy and girl, Castor and Clemenstra, and an egg. The egg hatched and then the other pair of twins were born, Pollux and Helena. Two mortal children of the king and two semi-divine children of Zeus two boys and two girls. The girls take a backseat in the story, as usual. So let's focus on Castor and Pollux. Although Castor and Pollux were different, <clears throat> although Castor and Pollux were children of different parents, they were inseparable. They loved each other dearly and they were strikingly similar physically. As they grew older, they became skilled warriors. One day, Castor had an accident and died. Pollux, filled with sorrow, begged his father Zeus to grant his brother, brother immortality. Zeus, deeply moved, decided to grant immortality to both of them. Thus, Zeus created a constellation in honor of these close brothers, and that is the origin of the constellation Gemini. As an aside, despite their mythological origin as male twins, the astrological image of Gemini can be, can be depicted by two female figures. This representation came later and was populated with horoscopes of this 20th century. Today, it's more popular and widespread than that of the legendary Castor and Pollux, who were depicted wearing eggshell-shaped helmets, Castor with a whip, and Pollux with a club, since Castor was a skilled horse trainer and Pollux was an expert in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The two Gemini women, on the other hand, are usually represented with long dresses and similar hairstyles. The illustrations that you see, maybe in this book or other books, might have the same whip or club, so they have ties to the original story. The myth associated with Cancer is Carcanos and the Twelve Labors of Heracles. Quote, one of the best known and most fascinating myths in Greek mythology is that of the 12 labors of Heracles, called Hercules by the Romans and by Disney. Heracles was a demigod of, and one of the most famous heroes in Greece. He was the son of the god Zeus and the mortal Alchemine. When Zeus proclaimed that the next child born in the house of Perseus would be a king, 
Hera, Zeus's wife and goddess of marriage and home, jealous of her husband's promiscuous behavior, moved up Eurystheus's birth and caused Heracles to be born a few months later, so that Heracles would not be king. As an adult under Hera's influence, Heracles killed his family. Also, by the way, Heracles is the, like the son of, of Hera, even though he's the son of Zeus. Um, when he regained his sanity and saw the atrocity that he had committed, he decided to go into exile. It encouraged him to seek advice from the Oracle of Delphi, who said, Handsome Heracles, to redeem yourself from the barbarity you have committed, you will have to carry out the feats indicated by your arch, arch enemy, Eurystheus. These feats are known as the Twelve Labors of Heracles. Depending on the version of the myth, they vary very slightly, but the list frequently includes the following. 1. Kill the Nymean lion. 2. Kill the <laughs> Lernaean hydra, or the crab, Carcinos, which... Never mind. 3. Capture the Crenian hind. 4. Capture the wild Euromanthian Uraminth- boar alive. 5. Clean the Augean stables in just one day. Which, if I remember correctly, were like super huge horses and there were a million of them, so it was really hard to clean. 6. Hunt the Stymphalian birds. 7. Tame the Cretian bull, which is the Taurus myth. 8. Steal the mares of Diomedes. 9. Steal Hippolyta's girdle. 10. Steal Geryon's cattle. 11. Steal the golden apples from the garden of the um, Hesperides. 12. Kidnap Cerebus, the dog from the underworld, and take him to the king. The constellation Cancer refers to one of the 12 labors of Heracles, although an extended version of this labor directs Heracles to eliminate the Hydra of Lerna. The Hydra is a mythological sea serpent with one, three, five, or even hundreds of heads, depending on the myth's version. The Hydra constellation is very is very physically close to the Cancer constellation in the sky. This monster had the ability to regenerate two heads for each one it lost. The Disney movie Her- Hercules refers to the Hydra story, although it's not too faithful in the myth of Heracles and his twelve labors. Carcanos, a mythological crab that inhabits the Lerna lagoon with with Hydra does not always appear in the stories of the labor. Carcanos attacks Heracles when he's fighting the Hydra, an act that the goddess Hera rewards by turning it into a constellation. (laughs) She's like, good job. (laughs) All I'm learning from this is that the Greeks were very obsessed with Heracles because the Leo myth um, is the Numean lion, which is one of the 12 labors of Heracles. So, um... This was the first of Heracles' labors, according to the most most versions of the myth. The labor consisted of killing the lion and stripping it of its skin, and that was no easy task. The animal, which had the population of Nemea on tenter hooks because it was terribly aggressive, had such a thick skin that no warrior's weapon could pierce it and kill the animal. The first time Heracles tried to kill it, he carried three weapons, a bow with arrows, an olive club, and a sword. Despite being a magnificent warrior, he failed to kill the giant cat, so he devised another strategy. He secretly followed the lion to discover his lair, cornered him inside, and with his own hands managed to strangle him. Next, Heracles set out to perform the second part of the labor, skinning the lion. He tried multiple weapons, but he was unsuccessful. Then Athena, goddess of wisdom, came down from Mount Olympus and secretly helped the hero. She disguised herself as an old woman and suggested, on the sly, that he use the lion's own claws to remove the skin from the lion's body. Heracles was skeptical of the old woman's idea, but he agreed to give it a shot. It worked. Thanks to Athena's intervention, Heracles fulfilled the labor that King Eurystheus had asked him to carry out, and he prepared to take the trophy to Mycenae. When the king saw Heracles wearing the animal skin as an armor, he was terrified. 
Rather than let him enter the city, Eurystheus arranged for Heracles to show the fruit of his labor from outside the walls. To serve as a reminder of Heracles' great achievement, the gods decided to turn Lion into a constellation, Leo. The origin of the Nemean Lion is not clear. Some versions claim that the lion fell from the sky, son of the god Zeus and the goddess of the moon, Selene. Other versions say the sun is the god of the monsters Orthus and the Chimera. The Chimera is a monstrous being, described most frequently as having the head of the lion, the body of a t dragon, and the tail of a serpent. In other versions, it is represented as a monster with three heads. One of a lion, one of a dragon, and the tail is the serpent. Orthus, on the other hand, was a monstrous two-headed dog whose owner was the titan Atlas, condemned by the gods to guard the celestial vault for all of eternity. Astria is the myth that gives rise, well, Astria is the myth connected to Virgo. The constellation Virgo, by the way, is the second largest after Hydra. It's representing a young woman with the fruits of the harvest in her hands. It particularly highlights the spike that she carries in her left hand. This element is formed around the star Aspigia, one of its brightest, so this star was used to locate the constellation. Many cultures associated the constellation Virgo with the young woman who symbolizes fertility and harvests. In Greek culture, it also represented the young Astria, Astria, the daughter of the god Zeus and Themis, goddess of divine justice. According to some sources, Astria is one of the Titanesses. Astria was entrusted by her mother with the task of helping administer justice among mortals. While her mother represents divine justice, the daughter personifies mortal justice. Astria was the last of the immortals to live in the underworld. Her father Zeus turned her into a constellation at the end of the Golden Age, a mythological era in which gods and mortals coexisted, and where most Greek myths take place. The scale that forms the constellation Libra is located to Virgo's right. In some versions of the constellation, Astria holds the scale that re represents justice. Astria is known for being the bearer of Zeus's rays, and for being the only titaness who is allowed to preserve her virginity. Allowed to preserve. Hmm. Since she was Zeus's ally in the war, war of the Titans, the god granted her this honor. There are several representations of this goddess and therefore the constellation. In some versions, she appears carrying the rays of Zeus. In others, she appears with a torch or the aforementioned spike or an ear of wheat. In some representations, she also has wings or a white habit of, or clothing, a symbol of purity and chastity. The constellation Virgo is one of the largest in the universe. It is the, it, its brightest star is Spica, but Auva, <laughs> Vindemiatrix, and He's also stand out. Additionally, the constellation Virgo is a cluster, the largest grouping of galaxies visible from Earth. Typically, Virgo is the only zodiac sign represented by a woman. For this reason, it's particularly associated with traditionally feminine characteristics, attention to detail and perfectionism, but from a cerebral point of view, since Mercury, which is minded communication, is its ruling planet, and it's an Earth sign, and Earth signs tend to be more rational and emotionally closed off. She's a woman in total control of herself. <laughs> I don't know what song that is. All right, let's move on to Libra. Um, we're not sure if the myth is Astria, which I just read about, or Julius Caesar. Quote, the constellation Libra represents the scales of justice, which is carried by the goddess Astria, also represented in the constellation Virgo. It goes on to read the entire story again of Astria, so we're going to move on to the next paragraph. Libra is a discrete constellation with dim stars located between Virgo and Scorpio. In some ancient representations, the constellation Libra is part of Scorpio. Even in Greece, it is sometimes called Scorpion's Claw. Libra became a constellation by ancient 
in ancient Rome by order of Julius Caesar, and it is the only constellation that doesn't represent an animal or a mythological man or woman. Another symbol hidden in the constellation Libra is its relationship between the scale and its ruler, Venus. It symbolizes the goddess's charm and her delicate balance. On one hand, pure love. On the other, lust. This delicate balance embodies the essence of attraction and love between mortals, and it manifests in the natives of this sign. Um, Delving further into the scale's hidden meanings, their origin and connection to justice are found in ancient Egypt and its funeral rites. When a person died, they had to stand trial before the gods Osiris, Thoth, and Anubis. The deceased gave Anubis their heart, and he put on a saucer of a scale. The heart represented the person's good deeds in life. In the other saucer, a feather symbolized the bad actions. If the heart weighed more than the feather, the deceased deserved eternal life. Later, the gods took the scale to represent justice, and the Romans later added a sword and a blindfold to the goddess Iestitia, a representation that continues to this day. The myth connected to Scorpio is Orion and the Scorpion. Two versions of the same myth are known to explain the origin of the constellation Scorpio. They share two characters, Orion and the Scorpion. Orion is a mythological character who appears in many sources, although no ancient author tells the uh, the story of him in detail. Generally speaking, Orion was a great warrior and a giant. He was so big that he could walk on the bottom of the sea with his head jutting out above the waves. One myth says that the giant Orion tried to rape Artemis, the virgin goddess of forests and hunting and protector of animals and nature, while she was hunting. To defend herself, Artemis asked a scorpion for help. It stung Orion, causing his death. The goddess, in gratitude, raised the scorpion to form a constellation. The other myth says Orion was the son of Poseidon, god of the seas, and Uriel, princess of Minos. Poseidon gave his son the ability to walk on water. In this myth, there are two subversions, one that says Orion went blind, and while wandering aimlessly, a scorpion stung and killed him. In the second version, Orion, who was a great hunter, was hunting with Artemis and her mother, Leto. Partially to show off in front of the goddesses, Orion said that if he wanted to, he could kill all the animals on Earth, for he was a magnificent hunter. Upon hearing Orion, the goddess Gaia, protector of the Earth, became angry with him, but also she felt threatened and scared. So she sent a monstrous giant scorpion to finish him off. The scorpion killed Orion, and Gaia raised the scorpion as a constellation. The goddesses Leo and Artemis, impressed by the situation, raised Orion as a constellation too, but placed him opposite Scorpio. The constellation Orion shines brightest in the winter, but dims as the summer approaches, while the constellation Scorpio brightens in summer and dims in winter. These two are forever at odds, as expressed in this myth. The scorpion appears in various mythologies, often referring to the dichotomy between its small size and apparent fragility, and its lethal venom, capable of killing a large animal or even a person if it feels threatened. The meaning fits well with Scorpio's idiosyncrasies. On the other hand, Scorpio's energy is also associated with the myth of Persephone, the innocent young woman who returns to Hades as a powerful and mature woman. It alludes to the process of transformation so frequently suffered by Scorpio women or those with the moon in Scorpio in their youth, assuming all intensity and power of Scorpios, assuming is assuming all the intensity and power of Scorpios instead of rejecting them is one of Scorpio's main challenges. Centaurs are the myth that alludes to Sagittarius. So First of all, we must talk about a centaur. Centaur is a half horse, half man. Specifically, the bottom of half is a horse, the top half is a man. 
Um, in the constellation, the centaur is illustrated with a bow, ready to shoot, representing Sagittarius's drive and momentum. Yet, there's no unanimous agreement that the constellation Sagittarius actually represents a centaur, despite having that image passed into the collective imagination. No ancient myths mention centaurs shooting arrows. For this reason, it's actually believed that the constellation truly represents the satyr, Krotos. A satyr's different. It's half ram, half man. They live among the muses and are cheerful and talkative, an image that fits better with the archetype of Sagittarius since centaurs tend to be mysterious, imposing, and not very communicative. Kronos, Krotos was one of the satyrs who lived among the muses, and two inventions are attributed to him in Greek mythology, applause and archery. Therefore, it's possible to think that the origin of the constellation has more to do with a satyr than with a centaur. On the other hand, some people believe the constellation represents the centaur Chiron, which is not to be confused with the Chiron planetoid, which is um, Pluto's twin. The centaur Chiron was the gro- the centaur Chiron was the son of Kronos, god of time and father of Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hestia, Demeter, and Hera, and Philyra, a nymph of the waters. Centaurs were known for always being in a bad mood, wanting nothing to be, do with humans, and being terribly rude and insensitive. However, Chiron was an educated, quiet centaur and a master of multiple arts, such as music and hunting, and he instructed some of the most well-known Greek heroes. As with most myths, there are several explanations about the origin of centaurs. In one version, they're, descend- they're descendants of Centaurus, son of Ixion and Nephili, king of Thessaly and goddess of the clouds, respectively and the Magnesian mares. Centaurs in Greek mythology serve as a metaphor for the brutality of man and for uncivilized behavior. The mythical battles between men and centaurs are called centromachy, and it's a metaphorical explanation for how reason, culture, and law defeat brute force. Similarly, myths about the Titans strive to convey the same message. However, the centaurs, Chiron and Phallus, do not stand with men in defense of civilization, art, and culture. And in astrology, Chiron gives name to a celestial body that we'll explore later. The metamorphosis of Pan is connected to the Capricorn constellation. When it comes to Capricorn-related myths, there are a couple of different versions of the origin of this constellation. The first is found in the Titanomy. Uh, That is the legendary war between the gods and the titans, in which the titans tried to seize power from Zeus and the rest of the gods to sow chaos and destruction. In this context, we find the demigod Pan, who was worshipped by farm, farmers and ranchers. Pan was a satyr, half goat and half man. He lived with the muses and liked to tease and chase them. The titan Typhon sent out to destroy all the gods and began a war between the titans and the gods. In the resulting chaos, Pan es- tried to escape to warn Hermes so that he in turn could warn Zeus. Pan jumped into a river, intending to turn into a fish and swim out in a hurry, but the transformation did not end well. <laughs> and he ended up being becoming a cross between a goat and a fish. Pan's warning came too late, as Typhon had already dismembered Zeus, so Hermes and Pan put Zeus's pieces back together so he could wage war. In gratitude, Zeus raised Pan as a constellation. A second constellation origin story is related to the cornucopia, or cup of abundance. Rhea hid Zeus so that her father, Kronos, would not devour him, as he had done with the rest of his children, because Kronos had overcome with fear that he, they'd grow up and take away his power. As a child, Zeus grew up in Crete with a nymph, Amalthea, a woman with a large golden horns on her head, like those of a ram. One day, one of Am- Amalthea's horns broke off, and she filled it with fruits, flowers, and sweets, and gave it to Zeus. 
in gratitude, he created the constellation Capricorn. The Capricorn character is very well captured and can be easily explained thanks to its representation. In Capricorn, we find duality. On the one hand, the goat represents the Capricorn's desire to continue climbing, to be tough, strong, and tenacious, like the mountain goats that endure inclement weather and their wild environment. The fishtail represents the emotional, the emotional, connecting Capricorn with water. This sign symbolizes how we can find the strength and security of the earth through our emotional side. Water nourishes the earth while emotions nourish the mind. To do away with the emotional sign would be to castrate our intellectual sides. Capricorns need to be in harmony and spend enough time with other people for this to work. This is a lesson that Capricorn must learn throughout life, as this sign is prone to relegate their emotionality as to not suffer. It's difficult for Capricorn to understand that life doesn't have to be an obstacle course. They can let themselves be nurtured by water or emotions and the company of others, giving way to their true potential. People with a lot of energy in Capricorn or the 10th house in their birth chart tend to encounter dilemmas of this type through their lives, especially in adolescence. Ganymede, the cupbearer of the gods, is the myth connected to Aquarius. The constellation Aquarius is one that other civilizations, including the Egyptians and the Sumerians, observed in the sky before the Greeks. I want to remind the author of this that the Babylonians had named almost all of these far before the Greeks did, but I digress. They all saw in this constellation a water carrier, a water barrier, or a vessel pouring the water. For Egyptians, it represented the rising of the Nile and the origin of life. For the Sumerians, it referred to the god and origin of life, An. In the Greek myth, the protagonists are the god Zeus and the charming Ganymede, the handsomest young man in the world. He was also the prince of Troy, which is no small thing. Zeus, of course, <laughs> naturally, took a liking to the young man. When Ganymede was in the field one day, an eagle kidnapped him and took him to Mount Olympus. The bird was Zeus, transformed. Once they arrived at the place where the gods lived, Zeus entrusted Ganymede with the task of being the cupbearer for all the gods. To compensate Ganymede's father for the abduction of his only beloved son and heir, Zeus gave him a series of presents, among which were immortal white horses. To further fix the situation, Zeus dedicated the constellation Aquarius to Ganymede, which represented him pouring water from a jar. So he <laughs> he abducted a child and then gave his father some horses. Like, <laughs> I'm so I'm so tired of Zeus. Okay. Um, even as a cupbearer, Ganymede seems to have found living on Olympus with the gods satisfactory, and he became one of Zeus's most loyal servants. Bro, that's... <laughs> What's that called when you get... It's Stockholm Syndrome, is what that is. The constellation Aquarius is accompanied by that of the eagle. Once again, Zeus gives the abductee a constellation in the shape of the animal he used to kidnap him. Remember the constellation Taurus? Um... Although Aquarius is an air sign and Capricorn is an earth sign, they're both indirectly related to water. While Capricorn's fishtail um, symbolizes that water nourishes and forfeits the earth, in Aquarius, the water symbolizes something different, change. The constellation's water carrier bears a vessel from which water falls to the ground, revolutionizing it, moving it, and changing it. This also reminds me of um, the star card that we talked about earlier in this episode. Pisces is connected with a myth of Eros and Aphrodite. The main characters in this constellation origin story are the goddess Aphrodite, called Venus by the Romans, and Eros, which is called Cupid by the Romans. Eros was the son of Aphrodite and Ares. Since Aphrodite is the goddess of pleasure, and Ares was the god of violence and war, it's easy to remember what Eros was god of, sexual attraction, sex, and love. There are many origin myths that exist, 
um, but we're going to cover just one of them. On a sunny afternoon when Eros was a child, he and his mother Aphrodite were taking in the fresh air close to a river. Aphrodite slept while the boy played next to her. Suddenly, Aphrodite realized that the Titan Typhoon, one of the most horrible beings on Earth, was nearby, and it was only a matter of time before he found and hurt them. Quick as lightning, he grabbed her son by the hand and she threw and threw herself into the river. Aphrodite transformed into a fish, as did Eros, and they let themselves be carried away by the current, tied together with gauze so as not to be separated. Did they think about that ahead of time? <laughs> or do it as fish? Hmm. They managed to escape from the Titan, and once they were safe, Aphrodite placed a gentle constellation of Pisces in the sky as a gift to her child. An early origin story came from Assyria and dealt with Dercedes, or Adargatus, a half-woman, half-fish goddess. Here, the constellation symbolized a single fish. So it used to be a half-fish, half-goddess. The fish has been a symbol in various cultures, many times related to the spiritual and mystical, as well as as well as in astrology. In Christianity, the fish is related to faith, with the premise that if you have faith, you'll be rewarded with abundance. In China, fish are associated with marriage and love, as koi swim in pairs and are a common gift for couples. In Scandinavia and Europe, fish are related to letting go, to enjoying and accepting life as it is, and to the ability to adapt. In astrology, when represented with a Pisces sign, fish are related to the hidden, the emotional, the sensitive, and the mutability of things, how we adapt to them, and our resistance, or not, to life's events. Fish give us the powerful lesson of letting things be as they are, and sometimes letting life flow means letting go and moving on, remembering the past as a valuable lesson, but not holding on to it. Ooh, we did it. Okay. So those are the Greek origin stories of the Babylonian zodiac symbols. Our um, next stop on the zodiac train, choo-choo, are the planets, the signs of the zodiac. So from what I understand, um, the, the signs of the zodiac are fixed. They are always in the same spot. They're always right around the same time of year that they show up. And what I come to understand is that the planets... Um, as we rotate and as they rotate, move through the sky fairly quickly. So um, let's talk about the planets and their relation to the zodiac signs. This is from the same book I just read out of. Um, she does a really great job and I really, this is a great book if you want to get it. Again, it is The Signs of the Zodiac by Carlotta Santos. So there's three groups of celestial bodies. There's personal planets, which are the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, and Mars. They have fast orbits, and they therefore change signs every few days or few weeks. They affect specific features of our personalities, including our way of communicating, loving, our interests, our emotions, or how we face an argument. Specifically, the sun is our basic identity self-image. The moon is our emotions or inner world. Mercury is our communication or interests. Venus is our affection style, taste, and sensitivity. And Mars is our violence, rebelliousness, and sex. Jupiter and Saturn are our social planets. They tell us how we influence society and our environment and how we should focus our personal development. They stay in the same sign for months or years. They're the ones that were known in ancient times and are classic ruling planets. Jupiter is our fulfillments, opportunities, and promises, and Saturn is our responsibility, maturity, and self-criticism. 
And then we have generational, transpersonal, or spiritual planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Notice that the farthest away from the sun we get, the slower the planet's orbits are. So these are an embodiment of modern astrology. They have a slow orbit. They remain in the same sign for years or decades. So we consider how they act in entire generations, marking historical or social moments. Uranus is revolution, inspiration, and independence. Neptune is creativity, dreams, and consciousness. And Pluto is death, rebirth, and taboo. Thank the heavens for Pluto still existing in this book. <laughs> um, so there are um, a bunch of other other words that people use when they talk about astrology, including nodes, Lilith, ascending, descending, midhaven, um, and including major other ma- other minor bodies like Chiron, Ceres, Phallus, and other asteroids. Um, but the ascendant sun and moon that they form a births chart in those three main positions. Now, there's also astrological dignities. So a planet is comfortable in a specific sign. Um, so we call that a ruler or domicile. It's where the planet is most comfortable, where the energy will flow and manifest itself comfortably. So, for instance, Mars is very comfortable in Aries and Scorpio. Um, The detriment or exile is the opposite. People with these positions will have a harder time being comfortable in that specific area. area. Continuing the same thing, Mars is not comfortable in Libra or Taurus. Exaltation is the sign where the planet has the greatest influence. It will manifest as powerful energy in that planet and position. It's favorable, and the native will have an easy time expressing it fluently. If I can, if I include Mars again, its exaltation is in Capricorn. And then fall. The planet will be in fall when it's holding the opposite sign of its exalted one. It's considered unfavorable. Someone holding that position will find it uncomfortable. Mars is fall in Cancer. And then let's talk about retrograde. Retrograde. Um, a planet is in retrograde when from the earth's point of view it looks like the planet is moving backwards it's not the case um all planets always rotate in the same direction but we see it as if it's going backwards a retrograde invites us to reflect and be introspective about the issue that governs the planet it's nothing to worry about but we may become less receptive a retrograde is a period to consider how to better focus on the issue the planet deals with When the planet goes direct again, meaning it's no longer retrograde, it's time to put into action all the reflections that have taken place. So when we say that Mercury is retrograde, Mercury is the planet that rules communication and interests. So when it goes backwards, we need to reflect on our communication styles and our interests. We also might have a hard time communicating. (laughs) That's, That's what Mercury in retrograde means, or as other people say, Mercury is in Gatorade. In the beginning of the episode, I said that you have more than one horoscope that matters, or sorry, more than one zodiac that matters. In astrology, there are 12 zodiac signs. Also, by the way, there was a rumor a long time ago when I was growing up that um, NASA had discovered (laughs) a 13th horoscope, so everything was going to change. Sorry about my cat. (laughs) She's not sorry. Um... Ophiuchus was um, between Scorpio and Sagittarius, but as we know, there's so many constellations in the sky, and we, um, 
at, so the Babylonians decided which 12 split the sky up evenly. So you can't just add a, add a horoscope, sorry, you can't just add a zodiac sign because then that won't be even anymore. It's not, that's not how it works. So don't worry about that. Your, your zodiac sign is not wrong because of NASA discovering something. We, we can name any, any constellation and call it a zodiac if we wanted to. We all know our sun sign. Our sun is our personality. It's our essence as a person. That's when somebody asks you what your zodiac sign is, they're asking you what your sun sign is. But, uh, and sorry, and that's where the sun was when you were born. So it's based on your month and day. Your moon is your core. That's your emotions as sub and subconscious. So your moon zodiac is just as important that as your sun zodiac is. And that's why a lot of times when somebody says, oh, aren't, why aren't you a Scorpius? You sound like a Scorpio. Um, sorry, Scorpius. <laughs> you sound like a Scorpio. Are you a Scorpio? And you're like, no, I'm a Taurus. And they're like, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. It's probably because they're looking at something else. Your rising sign is your outer appearance. That's where, that's what um, sign was rising on the horizon when you were born. That depends on the time of your birth. So if you go online and you type in your zodiac or your birth information, that's why they ask you for your time of birth. It's for your rising sign. And it gives you your outer appearance. And then Midhaven, which is the star, the zodiac sign that was in the sky when you were born in the Midhaven point, that's your vocation. It's what you'd be really good at doing. So all of those um, are part of your zodiac. And then when you do your astrology online, you'll get houses as well. So there's three main parts to astrology. There's the planet, the house, and the, and the zodiac sign. So if um, Venus is in Leo, Venus is to harmonize and Leo is to illuminate. So you will find harmony in illumination. And then if Leo is in your eighth house, that's joint, re joint resources. So when you find harmony in your joint resources, sorry, um, when you illuminate your joint resources, you will find harmony. So you can combine all those things. So I'm going to go through really quickly <laughs> and talk about each of those things, each of those key, um, keywords. So astrology, Aries is I am, it's initiative. Taurus is I have, it's possessive. Gemini is I think, it's versatile. Cancer is I feel, it's receptive. Leo is I will, which is to illuminate. Virgo is I analyze, which is service. Libra is I balance, harmony. Scorpio is I lust, intensity. Sagittarius is I see, which is an optimism. Capricorn is I use, which is ambition. Aquarius is I know, which is unconventional. And Pisces is, I believe, which is compassion. The planets, the sun integrates, the moon reacts to, Mercury communicates, Venus harmonizes, Mars asserts, Jupiter expands, Saturn controls, Uranus deviates, Neptune refines, Pluto transforms, and Chiron is your insecurities. And for houses, the first house is you externally. The second house is your income and possessions. Your third house is communication and quick trips. Your fourth house is home, harmony, and roots. Your fifth house is creativity and children. 
Your sixth house is work, service, and health. Your seventh house is relationships. Your eighth house is joint resources. Your ninth house is religion, travel, and spirituality. Your 10th house is career. Your 11th house is your friends, goals, and objectives. And your 12th house is your subconscious and your secrets. Now, uh, every planet has a has a zodiac and a house that it prefers to be in. And I've noticed that um, the sun is our essence as a person. It's comfortable in the first house, which is you externally. And the sun is ruled by Leo, which is to illuminate. I will. So all of those together make your astrology. So when somebody asks you for your zodiac, instead of just saying your sun sign, usually you say sun, moon, and rising. So I'm a Taurus, sun, um, Libra, moon, Taurus, rising, I think. I know I'm double Taurus, um, and my friend might do my reading on here. (laughs) We'll see. Okay. Finally, I want to talk about how zodiac... Um, sorry. Finally, I want to talk about horoscopes because horoscopes are one of the things that people say those go for everybody, right? Those happen all, everybody can agree with that, that statement. And so I want to talk about, um, the, the truth of this, um, this feeling, which is called the Barnum effect. This is named after PT Barnum, the greatest showman, um, uh, sorry, this is named after P.T. Barnum, who was the um, the circus guy, and he was in The Greatest Showman. That was a movie about him, which convinced people that he understands them better than they do themselves. Now, Bertram Foyer conducted an experiment in 1948 on the va- fallacy of personal val- validation, proving the Barnum effect. He gave his psychology students a personality test and then gave personalized feedback quoted personalized feedback, which the students rated an average of 4.3 from zero to five for accuracy, where five is the most accurate. Then he revealed that all the feedback was exactly the same. So in, in 1943, nope, <laughs> in 1948, Bertram Foyer, F-O-R-E-R, conducted an experiment on his psychology students which I think is a common thing in psychology. You, you learn psychology so somebody could experiment on you. <laughs> I don't think it's anything else. Um, so what he did was he gave them a personality test and then gave them personalized feedback and asked them to rate the accuracy of the statements. But he actually took an old um, newsstand astrology book and pulled a bunch of the statements from the astrology book And the students rated it as 4.3 out of 5 for accuracy, even though all of them had the same, um, had the same feedback. It wasn't really personalized. So, um, here was, here's what he told them. Every single person got the same exact feedback based on their quote unquote, based on their personality. One, you have a great need for other people to like and admire you. You have a tendency to be critical of yourself. You have a great deal of unused capacity, which you have not tuned, which you have not turned to your advantage. While you have some personality weaknesses, you are generally able to compensate for them. Your sexual adjustment has presented problems for you. 
disciplined and self-controlled outside, you tend to be worrisome and insecure inside. At times, you have serious doubts as to whether you have made the right decision or done the right thing. You prefer a certain amount of change and variety and become dissatisfied when hemmed in by restrictions and limitations. You pride yourself as an independent thinker and do not accept other statements of and do not accept other statements without satisfactory proof. You have found it unwise to be too frank in revealing yourself to others. At times you are extroverted, affable, sociable, while at other times you are introverted, wary, and reserved. Some of your aspirations tend to be pretty unrealistic. Security is one of your major goals in life. And um, I actually found the, um, the original publication by Bertram Foyer, which was called The Fallacy of Personal Validation, A Classroom Demonstration of, of Gullibility. And he had in there um, the actual number of people who said each statement was true or false. And the one that was the most false to them was some of your aspirations tend to be a little unrealistic. Second place to that is your sexual adjustment has presented problems for you. And then the two most, yeah, the two most agreed upon was you have a tendency to be critical of yourself and at times you have serious doubts as to whether you have made the right decision or done the right thing. Now these sound very specific, but they went for almost everybody. There was 39 students in that class and 38 of them agreed with both of those two statements. The lowest was 12 agreeing with a statement and that was the aspirations tend to be pretty unrealistic statement. Um, in Um, sorry. And then there's this thing called the Pollyanna effect, which I don't think I wrote down specifically, but it's basically like you will accept things that are positive about yourself, but you won't accept things that are negative about yourself. Barry Bernstein, sorry, Barry Beierstein said, quote, our brain has a tendency to assume to associate general things with something personal. Not only that, but our brain also consciously discards information that it feels inappropriate. And then, um, Okay. Um, the P.T. Barnum effect is also called the Barnum Foyer effect because of Bertram's Foyer's work in this field. Um, Paul Meal wrote an essay called Wanted, a good cookbook, <laughs> where he relates vague personality descriptions used in pseudo-successful um, psychological tests to those used by P.T. Barnum. So that's why it's called the Barnum effect. Um, now, here's the thing. I agree um, that there is some sort of effect. Like I can't, there's science behind this. And so what Ina um, Semensky said in terms of this, because tarot readers get this a lot. Um, they get that there's like this effect where you accept anything that's said about you and then just throw away what doesn't work. And so it sounds like it's really, um, it really works. She says, quote, um, tarot cards are universally universally applicable and can create a visualization of your situation. Once you see things laid out, it becomes clear what you actually want. So some tarot readers lean into the Barnum effect or the Barnum foyer effect without realizing it. Um, Cause what you're doing is you're saying, Hey, here's what I see. And people go, Oh yeah. Um, something, there's a quote that I probably didn't put in this book. 
sure did not. Um, there's a quote that I'm going to try to remember from memory, so I might be a little bit off, but it says, um, a mirror is a window to my face. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> Let me look it up. Okay, it's not in here. So it goes something like, a mirror is a window to my face, tarot is a mirror to my soul, or a window to my soul. Um, and that kind of feels like I your soul exists and your feelings exist. And so tarot just kind of brings it up and you go, oh, I recognize this. I can see this. It's also kind of reminds me of the coin flip theory, where if you're not sure about a decision, flip a coin, not because the coin will tell you what to do, but because in that moment of it flying through the air, you will know what you want because you have let something else make the decision. So um, and then finally, a fun fact that I learned about this is that um, our, the first day of the year is January. Um, they switched it a long time ago from March. So, ooh. Okay. So according to um, timeanddate.com, in 153 BC, January usually was 29 days and came after December. And the Roman year started in March. But there was a rebellion that forced the Roman Senate to change the beginning of the civil year from March to January which caused a lot of problems in terms of like some calendars said both things. Some of them, like there was like a whole switch from, from January 1st being the new year of the next, the new day of the next year. Um, and so our, um, so March 21st used to be the first day of the year because it was the vernal equinox, the spring equinox, which is why Aries is still the first sign in the zodiac because we used to have the, again, yardstick of the year <laughs> um, be the zodiac signs. And so Aries started us off all the way until that changed. And so that is a um, reminder, I guess, of why there are some changes in the system of the times back when we used the, used the calendar as a um, understanding of the world around us rather than just a thing that ticks on. So I just found that to be very interesting. And I hope you did too. Um, right now, this is clocking in at about an hour and 20 minutes. I think it'll shorten. 
after I start editing it to probably about an hour. So if you stuck around for the entire hour, thank you so much. And um, here's your horoscope for the day. (laughs) You have a tendency to be critical of yourself. And at times you have serious doubts as to whether you have made the right decision or done the right thing. But you're here. Sorry, but you have a great need for other people to like and admire you. And I do. Thank you for being here. Okay, bye.